Julia Simone, come in. So great to see you. Oh, hey, Megan. What's up? You sounded really urgent on the phone. I'm so happy you could come. Hey, okay, listen. I have, I got an opportunity for you. What's that? Okay, so you know you've been doing great work here at the Free Press. You've covered climate change, northern Manitoba communities, housing, poverty in Winnipeg. I, I really like the job you did when the paper needed a voice on Black Lives Matter. Uh, you've written features for the Narwhal, uh, the Walrus, and of course, all the nationally known pieces in the Globe and Mail, the Discourse. You make music, you're a poet, you do visual art. And now, like after all of that, I think you're ready for the next step in your career. This sounds very exciting. Ready for what? You're ready to become the Lone Ranger. What? Yeah. Hey, Dan's off this week. And I was looking around the newsroom and I was wondering who could ride a horse, wear a mask, carry a six shooter, and would be interested in joining me on the podcast trail fighting evildoers in the Old West. Okay, what are you talking about? What makes you think I resemble a Lone Ranger? Frankly, I'm insulted. Insulted? I think you'd make a great one because you're... <laughs> First of all, I'm Black. I'm not like... I... From Calgary? Oh. What else did you think I was thinking? Oh, nothing. Uh, you know what, actually? Not only will I co-host this podcast with you this week, I also think I make a better Lone Ranger. I mean, has Dan ever been to the Stampede? Has he ever ridden a horse? I am a way cooler Lone Ranger now that I think about it. Okay, sweet. Okay, now say into the mic, hi-ho, Silver, away! I won't be saying that. But I will teach you what we say in Calgary. So uh, it's it's not appropriate to say a yee-haw. You got to dig really deep and you hit them with a yahoo. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and special guest host, Julia Simone Rutgers. Welcome to a special episode of Nigan and the Lone Ranger with uh, not the Lone Ranger, but my very good friend from the Winnipeg Free Press, fellow writer, uh, Julia Simone Rutgers. Welcome, Julia Simone. Hello, Nigan. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy that you could be here with us, uh, not just because uh, I didn't want to do the podcast alone this week, uh, mm -hmm. but because uh, I've admired you for a long time. I've actually had you come and speak to my students at the University of Manitoba on your great work on poverty and housing in Winnipeg. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just a real honor to share this space with you. Maybe we'll take over and just kick Dan out for good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think, you know, uh, some people of color power on the podcast, not a bad thing. Uh, but, you know, the feelings mutual. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I feel like I learn a lot when uh, when we chat and hang out. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, it's like I said, great to have you on. And uh, you know, I'm sure our producer, Adam, will be very uh, impressed with our great opening bit there. So um, <laughs> let's get to the news. Uh, what we've, uh, you know, we're in election season, really, here in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, <clears throat> what we're seeing, uh, we've t- this has been a frequent topic in the podcast for the past few weeks, uh, seeing the way that the Conservative government in Manitoba is rolling out, um, preparing for their big budget, which is on March 7th, I believe, uh, but has been rolling out announcements. And we saw another one this week uh, where <clears throat> uh, announced, ironically, at the Thunderbird House uh, in downtown, we'll talk maybe about that in just a minute, mm-hmm. but a huge uh, housing announcement uh, where three 300 new social housing units have been announced, uh, promising and to fund another 400. Uh, the Conservative government in Manitoba, Family Minister's Rochelle Squires, is promising $58 million in new funding uh, for 2023-24, and on top of the already $68 million that it already had pledged. Now, you've worked a lot with housing. Uh, what's yeah. your thought on this announcement? You know what? Uh, I think it's well summed up. Uh, Carol Sanders at the Free Press, quick shout out to our colleagues uh, in the legislature there, uh, wrote a great story. And then she quotes, you know, some some folks who work in uh, housing and homelessness, uh, some of the nonprofits in the city. And, you know, something I've heard from them over and over again, and it's quoted again in this story, is just the Manitoba government loves to put out a plan, a funding announcement, a big idea. Uh, and then there are very rarely any specifics to back it up. And I think that that's what we see again here. Uh, you know, 300 new social housing units. That's a good thing. There's no there's no denying that it's good to have more social housing units. But 300 units is the bare minimum needed to keep up with demand that rises every year for social housing. And so agencies have been asking for a permanent 300 new units a year commitment, and then some more to make up for the backlog for years and years on end. And this, you know, it kind of feels like a bare minimum. Um, Not to mention, you know, 58 million in new funding. That's very exciting. It's very vague what that money is going to be used for, where that money is going to go. Um, You know, the province it isn't even sure who's going to be building these new social housing units yet. Uh, they're they're going to be issuing requests for proposals in the fall. Uh, we'll see what comes of that. Uh, it will likely be a partnership, Squires said. Uh, she said it might even be provincial-led housing. I never like to hear politicians say it might even be anything yeah. uh, because, you know, we don't know what that means. Um, but, but the government, I- yeah. It- yeah, well, I was just going to say that, you know, like, like, I think the first thing that I thought when I heard this announcement was, well, first of all, I'm very happy. And I'm also very aware of the kind of irony uh, as the conservatives are announcing social housing, like right outside the Thunderbird House there is 20 or so units, single bachelor units. Uh, yes. And, you know, for people who are in very dire situations and having patrolled that area now for five years, um, it is it is a very interesting project. I think it's a complicated project because, you know, uh, Salvation Army's right there. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a number of challenges, very many challenges, having picked up a lot of needles in that area, mm-hmm. having having seen the ways in which a lot of uh, instances happen both on the street and across the street. And then, of course, the fact that there's um, it's almost like putting social housing in a in a very uh, a tough situation in which you're going to face a lot of challenges. Um, but at the same time, it's also that was something that was a real uphill battle for those in the North End. Yeah. And and then I'm also fully aware that the provincial conservatives have sold off about 400 social housing since coming into office for the past five years or so. 
Um, you know, you keep hearing these stories of Manitoba housing being turned into for-profit mm. businesses. And then they announced another 300 units, 400 in the queue or 400 promised to be later. I mean, didn't they just have that? Yeah. And I mean, that is such a great point. I mean, we talk a little bit about this, you know, this offloading of public housing to the private sector, some of it to the nonprofit sector. But yeah, the government has seemed to be, you know, the trend has been washing their hands sort of 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 public housing, of social housing. Uh, when social housing run by the government is supposed to be, you know, the reliable gold standard. There's been a trend of passing social housing to the private sector and then subsidizing, you know, private sector rents, which doesn't work for most people. Um, you know, I, I love that you bring up uh, the Nicky Knack project. It's uh, it, it's very close to my heart. I wrote a lot about it when I was uh, re- reporting that walrus ha- housing piece. And in those, you know, those times, they were really still working to get things off the ground. And Um, so many obstacles were in their way along the journey. So many, so many construction materials, supply chains, funding, you know, all of these things. Uh, It's very exciting to see that it has worked out. But yeah, as you said, like that neighborhood, I mean, you've got the Bell Hotel across the street. You've got, you know, the MMF planning to open uh, their new 20 units of uh, social housing with wraparound supports. It's in the building directly next to the Bell Hotel, which is, again, right across the street from the Nicky Knack Project, from Thunderbird House. Um, there is this sort of new social housing popping up, but the government's track record is not a clear commitment to expanding and providing more social housing supports. Like even passing those units off to the nonprofit sector that very rarely comes with additional funding for the nonprofit sector. That's- and also the idea that housing is this kind of island, you know, and, and yeah. that's what I meant when I'm talking about that project around the Thunderbird house, because if you don't deal with poverty, right. And if you don't mm-hmm. deal with the issue of addiction, housing really doesn't matter. And my experience has been really profound uh, in, in that uh, I've, we have many units, um, mm. but people don't want, well, sh- shelters in particular is what I'm talking about, but people mm-hmm. don't want shelters. They want tents because they feel safer there. They feel c- more comfortable and they're even willing to face minus 40 degree temperature uh, mm. because that's the situation of shelters. And similarly for housing in that if people don't feel that a house is a home, and they don't yeah. feel comfortable and safe in that home, then it's almost like the home is created almost needlessly. And so there needs to be a poverty strategy alongside the housing strategy. But, you know, this the number that really blew me away, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, you know, there's an 8,000 person waiting list for Manitoba housing. Yeah. Um, you know, you make an excellent point. Housing is, you talk about the housing first approach, right? Where so many of these um concurrent, I guess, struggles that the city faces, whether it's addictions, mental health, uh, poverty as a whole, you know, a lot of it, it starts with that, you know, that sense of home, that sense of place, um, and and what creates uh, a, a safe sense of home for people. But yeah, that that 8,000 person waitlist, I mean, it fluctuates all the time. It is, I think, a really big indictment of the the network of care that we have in the province. Um, a lot of those are are families, you know, small families, large families. Uh, yeah, that number, you know, it's not 8,000 individuals, it's 8,000 families that are still waiting for uh, a place to live and a place to call home. You do see so many people choose not to take up shelter beds uh, because they lack, you know, they lack support, they're restrictive, they are, you know, 
often spaces where people feel really watched and sort of controlled in what they're able to do. Uh, and autonomy for people is so important. And that's why social housing is so important, because it should just be an easily subsidized place to live in a neighborhood you feel comfortable in where you can, you know, send your kids to school, go to the grocery store. Um, and yet there's just such so little of that available. I mean, we have tons of empty units that are in need of repairs. The government has been slashing and slashing and slashing the care and maintenance budget for these homes. Um, you know, you're adding new units. You haven't finished fixing the ones that that are out of commission. A lot of these social housing units aren't in the neighborhoods people feel comfortable. That was one thing that really struck me about uh, about Nicky Nack as a project was, you know, while it is a tough area, to have a social housing project. Uh, it is an area that was chosen because residents who had been evicted from the campground uh, outside of the MMF building in that same neighborhood, they wanted to stay in that area. There were a lot of supports there, a lot of oh, community yeah. developed there, right? And so also putting it there. Main Street Project right there. Yep. Uh, and then on top of that, the fact that, you know, you had basically, it was kind of in this real sweet spot of terrible turn to be used, but a real sweet spot in terms of the um, frontline organizations that were able to address and support those people. Um, you know, we were, we were there regularly, uh, but when, mm -hmm. that, when those communities scattered, they mostly scattered along the red river and yeah. they, Came out of the catchment of where we could patrol and then be a regular presence uh, as the mobile yeah. bear clan. Also, the bear clan didn't go there anymore because it's way out of their catchment, which is on the other side mm -hmm. of Maine. You know, I don't want to, you know, pile on the uh, the the darker stories, but, you know, there's also something that came out uh, recently last week. Um, Campaign 2000 has released yet another report um, on child poverty, child welfare in the country. Uh, Campaign 2000, for those who don't know, is uh, something that started in the late 80s. Uh, it's basically a nonpartisan coalition, about over 100 or so organizations. A lot of my colleagues are a part of Campaign 2000. And what they do is they offer a report card on where provinces are at in terms of child poverty. And uh, Manitoba, perhaps not surprising for a number of reasons, um, doesn't come out very well alongside many of the other prairie provinces. Manitoba has seven times the national average of children that are in poverty. Uh, one in five, uh, one in five children in Manitoba um, are in poverty. Uh, but in situations like Churchill, uh, we're mm. talking about three out of 10 Hmm. children that are living in poverty. And so it's really true, this kind of theory that I have in Manitoba in that Winnipeg has this uh, this situation of, of deep poverty that's affecting children. But as you go more north, uh, and Phoenix Sinclair being perhaps the worst example, um, children get more and more impacted as poverty is not addressed. And we yeah. see, you know, Tina Fontaine, of course, uh, who... Yeah had, uh, you know, was in the child welfare system and then ends up in Winnipeg, but that all began in the, in the North. And so the situation in the North is very dire and is impacting children the most. We hear often about uh, murder, missing Indigenous women and girls. We yeah. particularly hear about the over-incarceration of Indigenous men, but we're really seeing a dire situation coming out of the pandemic where children are faced with uh, not being able to be fed, not access to appropriate health. And because of the pandemic, things are worse and worse. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is um it's such a heartbreaking, you know, set of set of facts and um yeah, I've I've done a lot of work in in sort of recent months talking to uh communities in the north and particularly communities who are working to sort of support indigenous youth in the north um through land-based education, through sort of reconnection with um with with culture, with traditional values um but that poverty situation, it just underscores so many of the issues that we see in, you know, in Winnipeg, in all of Manitoba. It, it lends itself to the housing crisis. It lends itself to, you know, the child welfare uh, crisis in Manitoba. Uh, Clayton Thomas Mueller told me the other day, you know, there are more children in care now than uh, than there ever were during, you know, during the residential schools. That is linked to to child poverty it's it's you know the further from these urban centers where these resources are concentrated not only in the city but in particular neighborhoods in the city you know the further away you get from that the more dire these situations become and i think it's easy for winnipeggers to um not see the problem and uh therefore turn a blind eye right and particularly think of it as a them problem, right? Yeah. But the reality is that when we have children in poverty, uh, the children, let's just focus on children, but we could talk about, of course, parents of those children, grandparents of those children. I mean, you just yeah. have to go to the Health Science Centre today to see who is it that's using the emergency room at Health mm. Science Center. It's by the vast majority is Indigenous peoples from the North, which is the, mm. that's where they're funneled to is where the Health Science Center is. But, you know, it, when in children are in poverty, they don't just use the healthcare system, but they also enter the justice system. Never mind mm-hmm. the fact that 90% of the child welfare system is Indigenous children. And then on mm-hmm. top of that, uh, we're then faced as a community is what do we do when they are uh, chronically undereducated? Um, mm-hmm. How do we b- b- devise programs to address that? How do we devise what is the real solution, the most important solution, which is how do we get children to feel good about themselves? That's mm-hmm. language culture. And I don't know if you've noticed, but what I've just told you is the TRC calls to action in the first four. Absolutely. Calls. And so yeah. <laughs> address the issue of children and particularly Indigenous children, because it's not yeah. just Indigenous children, but in, for the most part, it is the, the majority Indigenous children who are impacted by, by this. And so we need governments to step up, but we also need agencies to take attention and, uh, and everyday Winnipeggers to realize this is an issue that's going to impact all of us. Yeah. And as hopeless i think as it might sometimes seem you know as you mentioned there is a a full report with a clear set of recommendations to start addressing these problems and i you know i don't think uh i don't think people realize that the plans are there we just have to start following them well uh for that both topics but particularly the second one um i think we have a perfect guest this week uh our guest is uh, grand chief from manitoba giwetano ogamak uh, Garrison Settee, uh, who is a good friend of mine, and uh, I know you've uh, you've been wanting to interview uh, Garrison for quite a long time, Grand Chief Settee, um, and uh, he's going to be our, our our special guest. Uh, he's worked for decades uh, as a former teacher, and he also knows the issues of children and education in the North. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about. Uh, what are the interests of the North economically, but then also educationally? And what is it some of the biggest challenges that are coming out of the pandemic? Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that with uh, with Garrison. And we have a very special storyteller who you worked very hard to get us this week. 
I did, yes. So uh, switching things up maybe a little bit for uh, Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast, uh, we have a story today from Nestor Windrush. Uh, he is a storyteller, a poet, uh, a musician. He's influenced by uh, poets like Linton Kwesi Johnson, Rakim. Uh, he is an echo and a future footprint of his ancestors and uh, he'll be telling a little bit of a story for us today. Hi, this is Elliot Walsh, aka Nestor Windrush, recording artist, poet, arts facilitator, artistic director for Trinipeg Live Mixtape, and Jerry Fest. This is Storytellers. This came off of working with uh, Peter Lopez as a great manager, wonderful older Jamaican dude that loved music. Um, and working one summer with him in, in Malton with a number of youth, part of a mentorship program, uh, driving around playing hip hop beats and uh, dance hall and some good old uh, rock steady. Driving around Malton and Rexdale. That left an impression and going to, uh, Ackham Hall in Winnipeg, which I did with the money that I worked to get, uh, ended up going to Winnipeg, um, where my extended family lived and now I live. And, uh, just going to their black history program that was run by Adoma Patterson. Uh, at the time, uh, just made, and so those, those lessons always stayed with me and Ackham Hall is on what, and was established in 1968. And that's, uh, the African Caribbean Association of Manitoba. You might've seen some of the dancers and such, um, do the ballet, I believe, um, at Folkorama for, for years. We're two minutes into the story and I've even got into first job but i think it's really important that you know the the where this all comes from so during that time of of working for mr lopez and the multi neighborhood services we talk about music and the one thing that the toronto area had was lots of music you got music from buffalo wblk uh depew um buffalo coming in over the the water you had uh, CKLN and CIUT, the community stations and ooh, the, the York station, uh, also playing, uh, hip hop music. Uh, and just knowing that I had cousins and family outside of the city and just wanted to provide some information to them. Uh, I just ended up writing down the street from us in, in our block, uh, in, in Saga was a bunch of barbershops and a, a vinyl record shop, something that was modeled by, by the, the record shops that these, these two Jamaican cats, they loved, um, growing up. And so in this area that we lived in, in, in Cooksville, uh, Mississauga, the, the, the core area would have become became it's just like it was a lot of us and and our culture so i just wanted to spread that and give that more to 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 my family 
and also to the high school that I was in and because I was always listening to the radio and stuff and I got obsessed in breaking it down so I'd write these these articles these pieces and reviewing the music that was out and telling what the top 10 is and and who was doing what and so family would read that and they'd love it and then the the people in my my high school they liked it as well shout outs to TLK and uh so I ended up just out of confidence there's I wanted to work in a record store so the biggest mall in on Ontario might be even the second biggest square one uh is just around the corner from our block and I just went and saw the the asked for the manager and uh just handed them one of the magazines actually she saw me handing out some of the magazines these these zines I'd say uh to to some of the homies some of the brethren and uh she's like what are you doing there I'm like I just handed this to to a friend and I already handed out a resume yes I already handed out a resume there and um she's like can I see that and so I was like yeah sure just keep it and uh I was walking by again um to check what was going on if the resume was there but she ended up hiring me like on the spot she's like i like this you could do this uh like give recommendations of what was out there and there was i don't even think there was a black employee inside of there or someone that knew the music and remember at this point this is like mid 90s early 90s and uh rap was just picking up and especially in canada it's just it was an unknown and uh very 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 white space being a youngin going into there and getting a job just working a block away from home I was pretty proud of myself here we are uh with a very special guest on the Nigon and Long Ranger podcast a grand chief of Manitoba Giwetunok Ogamak uh Garrison Sati welcome to the Nigon Long Ranger podcast well, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and uh, of course, our my co-host uh, Julia Simone Rutgers, who's uh, on the trail with us, and uh, uh, has actually a, probably a bit more experience than I do recently in terms of writing about the North, and uh, is also working a lot, lots of stories involving mining and housing and poverty. We're in the middle of winter here in uh, treaty, you know, the various treaty territories um, and um, in Manitoba. And uh, you are now uh, in year two of your second mandate as Grand Chief of, Manit- of MKO. Um, how has it been being Grand Chief? And also, uh, you know, you were a former teacher and former chief of Pimichikamak community, you're in your community. Um, how was being a teacher uh, still something that you're doing today as the Grand Chief? Uh, being a teacher was uh, one of the most privileged opportunities I had to impact uh, our people, especially uh, in the classrooms in high school. And uh, I felt I had the responsibility to inspire, to motivate uh, our students to uh, try to find a way to create a better existence for themselves. It was a passion of mine to motivate our students to graduate and to finish uh, their academic life. And uh, because I realized uh, 
growing up in a First Nation that the opportunities are very limited. And then when you realize that there's a, usually a 95% unemployment rate in First Nations, you need to find a way to navigate through that. And I felt that education was the way out of poverty and also uh, bringing into ideas of uh, eliminating, eliminating the codependency that exists because it's deliberately designed and orchestrated by by uh, colonialist regimes. So I found it very important. I found it would to, my mission to inspire the youth to think outside of the box, to think beyond what they see. And that was a passion of mine, and it still is, to motivate students uh, in our communities to uh, rise above their circumstances and embrace education to emancipate themselves from from poverty and also the things that happen in First Nations. And then uh, because I was teaching along these lines for a long time, uh, the students started talking to their parents and I'm talking about Aboriginal and tree rights all the time and also uh, residential schools, the impacts of that and also the uh, uh, assimilation has impacted our lives. And I taught a course, uh, Indigenous Law was a course that we introduced into the high school. And I taught this for many years. And the students started talking to their parents and saying, well, this teacher is talking about this. This teacher is teaching us this. And this teacher is motivating us to do this and that. And then they started talking to the parents for me to run as chief. And uh, that was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. Because I know what happens in those uh, town hall meetings or band meetings. <laughs> I've seen how how tense it can become, and then said, "That's not for me." But uh, as, and, and as, as leaders, I mean, as elders started approaching me, then I, I I I gave myself the opportunity to think about it, and also to uh, see what I can do. And um, so that's how I became a chief, by the uh, encouragement of elders. I threw my name in the hat and uh, and I became elected as a chief and I was there for five years. And uh, But knowing the circumstances and situations prepared me for my role because each circumstance in First Nations is pretty much the same everywhere else. So, so you were aware of the issues and you were aware of the situation. So uh, it prepared me to be in my role because more empathetic and understanding the, the chiefs that I represent. I'm, I'm a little biased, of course, I'm a former teacher as well. Um, but I think, you know, teachers bring things to the political circles that aren't seen um, and, you know, are innovative and creative because we're often changing gears a lot and trying to change the classroom and so on. I mean, you know, MKO is arguably one of the most interesting uh, political organizations in the country uh, because you don't just represent 26 First Nations, but you also uh, you don't follow like colonial boundaries. Like one of your members is from Saskatchewan, Whitewater uh, uh, First Nation, I think. And um, is that right? Whitewater, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then and then on top of that, you don't just have chiefs voting for the MKO Grand Chief, but you also have head members of the community. Um, and so that's really interesting because what you've done is you've, you've innovated governance. Um, you're not following colonial boundaries. And you also cover multiple treaty areas, you know, treaties four, five, six, and I think it's 10 as well to 10, 10. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, like, it's just very interesting, the work that MKO is doing. And of course, we talked a little bit before we were on air, uh, but you're also a singer, you do, you know, you play in a band. 
How many grandkids play are singers in a band playing Johnny Cash songs? <laughs> Not too many, yeah. But yes, our our, our organization uh, is unique and uh, in many ways because we represent so many remote First Nations, and I've always argued that our uh, organization has to be more vocal because of the 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 needs that are uh, the needs that exist in the north are are far more critical than some of the uh, First Nations in the South because of the remoteness. And I thought that we would have to be very strategic on how we communicate our messages to governments because uh, our people need uh, the support and our people need help uh, more than any other demographic. So that's why I felt it's important that we uh, build the credibility of the organization and also uh, pose uh, uh, have stability in how we move as an organization so that we can uh, be able to ha be the the organization that is the most effective in lobbying for our people. So that's something that's very important. Yeah, I think that structure, you know, it, it is incredibly unique and it gives a lot of voice and, and kind of collective power to to a lot of these remote First Nations. Um, I want to shift a little bit and it's not a not a huge shift. You know, you were talking a little bit about employment opportunities uh, in the north and, uh, you know, high unemployment rates and sort of providing those those windows, particularly for youth. I've been thinking a lot about the north and its economic development uh, in my role doing climate reporting. And specifically, uh, thinking about the mining industry uh, in recent in recent months, uh, and I think that there's this really delicate balance that starts to come up between economic development in the north and the relationship between economic development and mining, and you know the ethics duty to consult under Section 35 impacts on the land, um, on on hunting rights, fishing rights, trapping. Uh, what does a healthy balance between these factors, economic development and, and those ethics elements, look like for Northern First Nations? It has always been clear that uh, our First Nation people need to be consulted whenever there's any kind of activity in our First Nations. And because previously, uh, in days gone by, that there was always that uh, the lack of consultation uh, and consulting and also to accommodate, that's also mm. a part of it. Because what has happened in the past is that uh, resources have been extracted from our territories for a long time without having First Nations having the uh, benefit from those uh, resources or the extraction. And now we're talking about a new, it's a new era. There's a paradigm shift that's happening where First Nations are uh, coming into uh, a position where they can be partners in anything that happens when it comes to any kinds of resources extraction, but also at the same time, protecting the environment has always been crucial to all of our people. And uh, to, without having that kind of engagement or discussion or those conversations, nothing will move forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a paradigm shift that where First Nation people and leaders are, are very strong and what happens in our north, because nothing will happen without our free prior uh, informed consent. Those mm -hmm. days are over when will people uh, or corporations and mining companies come into our territory to start extracting resources without our involvement or even having a, a, a revenue sharing process, because those things are, are changing because uh, we have to address all the issues that we have, like the unemployment and uh, 
Also, the poverty that exists, it's because we have been marginalized from the economy mm -hmm. in the North. We've been marginalized from being uh, involved in the economy for the longest time. But those days are changing. And I think that we have young leaders that are educated, that we have young leaders that have uh, backgrounds in law. We have educators and also people that are very uh, uh, in tune with the, how the business uh, businesses works and corporations work. So uh, it's a new day and a new new era. So those things are changing. So, but it's it still involves consultation. And then mm. if there's going to be uh, a healthy balance, you're, you're going to have to talk about consultation and accommodation, not just consulting right. and then leaving us alone. We want to be part of the process. And that's been missing for a long time. And uh, I think that economic reconciliation is the operative word here. And if there's going to be any economic reconciliation here, they're going to have to start uh, putting in some uh, effort and also some work in accommodating our people to make sure that we are uh, part of the uh, prosperity, the wealth and prosperity of any corporation. You know, it's funny you use consultation. Um, I, you, you were out on a press conference recently with uh, uh, Grand Chief Daniels, um, um, Grand Chief Merrick, and, uh, you know, like like consultation is most oftentimes we're going to call you somewhere along the process. That's not at the start of the table. I mean, and I think the press conference that I'm referring to, we guys were talking about why is it that uh, leaders are and governments are kept out of health uh, conversations. I mean, there's perhaps nobody who knows more about health than first nations, particularly mm -hmm. the fact that our communities and Northern communities, particularly handle the pandemic better than almost anyone else uh, by choosing to make some really drastic decisions um you know i think that that's i think that's really important and and i think it's important to recognize that uh you know first nations need to be at the table at the very beginning not at the somewhere along the way that's a message that i've been telling the governments uh, ever since i've been in my role is that there's been many decisions made about our northern first nation people and those decisions have caused irreparable harm to our people and have done more damage than good. And that happens, I said, when you do not involve us in your decision-making, when you do not involve us in uh, making policies, uh, and I said, we have lived for 150 years by a lot of decisions that have been made on our behalf without in our inclusion. I said, those days are over. I said, we are a people that uh, are confident in our ability and our capacity to look after ourselves if we have the resources. I said, but nothing can happen in this day and age without our involvement because that's why we were very strong when the pandemic came because we knew that our people were most vulnerable. They were most at risk and we had to really step out and actually engage and force change, uh, initiate change when it comes to our people. And I still believe that it's very important that uh, no decisions, provincial or federally, should take place without our involvement. And uh, we're not just going to sit back and allow those things to happen anymore because our people's lives and well-being are at stake. And we need to be continue to be firm in ensuring that we are engaged uh, thoroughly and uh, being part of these discussions and being part of decision-making because uh, we are at a position where uh, we can no longer allow any other government to dictate what happens in our territories. That's a really, you know, really excellent point. And 
when we were talking earlier about, you know, resource extraction, you were talking about this idea now of, of economic reconciliation, right? Being in these decision-making roles, but also uh, benefiting, you know, from the prosperity of these projects. When we're looking at resource extraction, I mean, the government has been talking up reconciliation as a focus for their mineral strategy. Uh, you know, what does that economic reconciliation really look like in in terms of this industry that has maybe caused more harm than good? Yeah, I, I think that uh, whatever we can do, we must uh, figure out how we can protect our environment or harm it in the most minimal way where our people are satisfied that whatever is happening is, is trying to uh, ensure that we have the environment, the lakes and the waters and the forests for future generations. We always try to think seven generations ahead. So that's just still part of those discussions. And we want to make sure there's minimal damage to environment. And of course, there has to be resource extraction, but done in a way that is done in a way that is respectful and also uh, at uh, not at the, dis the detriment of our uh, environment and our lakes and our waters and our rivers and also our forests and the land. So those are things we're very careful of. Yes, we have to move forward. We ha yeah, there has to be a progressive move forward in trying to establish uh, an economy. But at the same time, you cannot uh, jeopardize the future generations. So that's reconciliation and meeting us halfway and meeting us and allowing us to sit at the table to make these decisions along with uh, the entities that come in our territories. Manitoba, you know, developed that framework. You're talking about this paradigm shift we're starting to see. It's developed this framework for mineral development in partnership with First Nations. That sort of started a few years back. The government's also highlighted Indigenous communities as eligible to receive money from uh, the Manitoba Mineral Development Fund, which is, for those who don't know, you know, a $20 million pot uh, handed out by the Chamber of Commerce uh, to support mining, exploration, mineral development. How have these kinds of steps been received by Northern First Nations? Uh, we're uh, treading very carefully, of course, and we're examining uh, all the angles and also uh, what are the potential options that we have. So we cannot really uh, rush into uh, a lot of these decisions because we're talking about at least 73,000 First Nation people that live in the North. We want to make sure that we act uh, uh, on the best interests of our people. So that we're very careful in how we uh, uh, navigate through this process because I believe that every decision we make impacts our people. And uh, we want to make sure we do what is right, uh, we do what is uh, environmentally safe, and also not just, just to, uh, you know, like uh, jump at the opportunity when there's uh, funding being offered to us to make sure that... Uh, we uh, act with utmost circumspect so that we can do what is right, what is just for all of us. So uh, it's a discussion that's still ongoing. That, and uh, uh, and how we allocate those funding is another uh, aspect of it. We want to make sure that what we do it is fair for our people and also making sure that uh, we conduct our businesses in a way that uh, will benefit us in the long run, uh, perpetually and sustainably. Would you say that uh, in your time, I mean, you know, because you have an extensive experience, not just as we mentioned before as a teacher, but then a chief of a local community, now grand chief, uh, would you say that you've seen an improvement in life in the North over the uh, 15 or so years you've been in significant leadership positions? Would you say that generally 
um, when you go to First Nations, life is better, or is it the same, or is it in areas have gotten worse? Like for instance, um, the the recent death of Noreen Tate uh, and the spate of violence on Opipa and Nap- Napiwin uh, Cree Nation. Um, I mean, really, it seems like at times the people from the south only hear these stories of dire difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but would you say that things are better in the 15 years since you've been in leadership, not just because of you, but because of like in your experience, work with the province and so on? I think that there's been gradual change, but not sufficient change. And uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, I can say 10 years ago, I went to the United Nations as the chief of my nations to uh advocate and lobby on behalf of our Northern First Nations when it comes to uh, poverty, uh, uh, lack of housing, uh, and also deplorable housing conditions and the water conditions, and also uh, the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women. Ten years ago, we uh, went there to advocate because Canada was about to present their report on their uh, their human rights uh, uh issues actually uh, trying to uh, kind of uh, go there ahead of time to tell the truth. So there's been gradual change, but not su- sufficient change. As you see, the, the 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 rates of suicide are still high in First Nations. And I'm dealing with chiefs uh, every day about attempted suicides. And there's still a lot of poverty in our First Nations. So there's been gradual change. And... Uh, even education, uh, there's still not the, the quality education that our First Nations deserve because of the lack of funding, the disparity of funding when it comes to First Nation education. So I, I would like to say that there's been gradual change, but I think that we are nowhere we need to be as First Nations in the North. And we've been advocating, the Chiefs have been advocating. We have been raising our voice, and uh, it's sad to say, but... Uh, the conditions have not really improved to a substantial degree that we can begin to celebrate. I don't think it's, I don't think so. Also, I mean, you know, MKO, I think people might confuse this, but MKO is, uh, doesn't have a government per se. And uh, what, like it's it's a it's a group that particularly works for advocacy of 26 First Nations. And so I think most Manitobans might not understand that, uh, you know, the Southern Chiefs Organization, uh, MKO, even the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, uh, they do do a lot of program delivery, some really important work, um, of course, all the advocacy, but isn't like a constituent government that can then go and make um, direct service delivery or policy changes or laws per se. I mean, you could pass, I suppose, or encourage communities to uh, pass bylaws or so on, or chief and council resolutions, but it's not, it's not the kind of thing where uh, we can just say, well, you know, uh, you go deal with this uh, grand chief organization. Yeah. Well, by virtue that MKO as an organization cannot uh, make decisions on on uh, the rights of individual First Nations when it comes to treaties or uh, Aboriginal rights or anything to do with land. But uh, by uh, resolution in our assemblies, that's where I get my marching orders. All the 26 chiefs direct me to do something specifically. I have that authority to act on their behalf. So 
it's at the direction of the resolutions and chiefs assembly and also our executive council so that gives me that that authority or the ability to be able to speak on behalf of the collective voice but i never have the ability just to go on my own to make decisions on behalf of the 26 first nation so i feel comfortable in that role and uh, i i'm under, under the uh, i'm cognizant of the fact that i'm a, a representative of a collective voice but also at the same time i'm mindful of the limitations to my role so so i feel that uh, as long as i'm getting the direction and uh, the the marching orders i can continue to move to advocate and become that voice for our people campaign 2000 just issued a report card on child poverty in manitoba and it showed you know one in five children in manitoba and then as we get further north you know baffling 3 in 10 ch- children in churchill mm. live in poverty conditions um you know we think the reasons for poverty are clear but the solutions are complicated speaking you know as that collective representative voice you know what are some of the priority areas to address child poverty well uh, child poverty is not something new we can go back to 10 years of statistics being filed and compiled for uh for people to look at and very little has changed and uh i i was just uh cruising through uh the manitoba poverty reduction strategy when uh the the now prime minister was minister responsible for uh, uh uh as a minister responsible for ending uh poverty um uh, children's poverty and then the, very little has happened and uh so it's the, the lack of uh, political will and and uh, also to implement these strategies it's all nice to identify yes there's a problem identifying the problems and the causes of these problems but not having the 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 the, the initiative to reform or change status quo it rests on governments and that's where we as leaders will have to continue to pressure governments to ensure that they implement these uh uh strategies that will reduce poverty but that nothing has happened uh substantially and not also that uh 4 out of 10 first nation children in the north still uh live in poverty and that's uh because of uh the lack of resources resources and also uh Uh, the inflation and also the uh standards of living and basic needs are so high uh just getting like simple things like formula and diapers and foods that are conducive to a healthy lifestyle and the unemployment rate being 85% and uh even like uh single parents don't have daycare so they can't go to work because nobody can look after their children so there's resources that are not available and it's a, a responsibility of the the government to ensure that the resources are there because our situation will be improved if the, on from the federal level if the treaties are being honored we would never have to pound on the door for uh, proper health uh systems or proper education systems and proper housing if those treaties were honored but uh, uh, that's a federal uh responsibility but at the same time the pr- province is responsible for allowing services to reach our communities because first nations are manitobans as well 
and they've always uh, tried to uh, sort of pass the buck when it comes to Manitobans living in First Nations that they are federal responsibility. So there's a game there that's being played. So, uh, but the bottom line is employment, education, and training will in no doubt change the status quo for a lot of the things that are happening when it comes to poverty. But uh, being being uh, able to access proper uh, necessities, basic necessities, is a is a shame, and the governments are to blame for uh, lack of uh, providing these resources. And you know, like the, the the one thing that I think is the chronic epidemic in our communities is mental health. Uh, like I think that trauma um, is not something that's in the past; it's something that's ongoing. And it's trauma is the cause of much of this uh, situation. We might then therefore say addictions or poverty or, or, you know, even just um, if you think about the ways in which uh, lateral violence happens within our community too. I mean, so much of it is tied to mental health. The federal government spent a lot of time talking about mental health coming out of the pandemic, has dedicated a, a number of funds uh, to provinces to give to deal with the issue of mental health particularly but there hasn't been any new dollars really there was a you know uh, around mental health for first nations it seems to me that this is the most undiagnosed epidemic of our community uh and if you think about of course intergenerational harm from residential schools etc cetera, etc cetera, i just list them all down um you know it just seems that mental health should be that one advocacy bot thing that uh, I think of the chiefs up north just did that. Um, the they all got together and wore pink shirts for bullying. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and how important it is that you know just bullying alone is something that saves people's lives. Absolutely. So I, I've sat down with a minister responsible for mental health, and I've uh, I presented a position that. Uh, after the pandemic and even during the pandemic, there was so much trauma uh, and also systemic trauma that has really plagued our First Nations and that it's really exacerbated by the pandemic. And I was surprised how, how little effort was given to mental wellness in our First Nations. Uh, as a former teacher, I, I remember teaching at a school uh, actually, I was a vice principal at the time. 1,500 students in, in the school, only two counselors were present, and they were overworked. There was just not even enough uh, of, the, of, of, the, of the support that they could provide. So it, it is a crime. It is unethical that we uh, deprive our First Nations of that kind of help that they need. And because we live through all kinds of trauma that other segments of society probably do not have to live through and also that uh, we need those resources and also you start to have to train people to work in those capacities because uh, simply the, uh, the depression and also the suicide attempts are non-ending uh, even right the chief will call me as late as two days ago that there's a, a school where a student had to cut down a, a, a fellow student that was attempted suicide. Like these are the realities that we live in, and uh, and the governments are not waking up and and trying to get some 
kind of funding to make sure that the mental health issues are addressed because they're not it's not happening and our chiefs are suffering our communities are suffering because what's happening in the first because they live they live it from day to day it's sad these are issues that uh in my understanding you know have been facing northern first nations in manitoba and, and across the country for for years and years and you were mentioning earlier you know there are plans drawn up and action task forces, you know, pulled together. Um, and yet the political will just still doesn't seem to be there. And this is something we were talking about uh, a little bit earlier on the show with respect to housing is this idea that the government puts out these plans, these ideas, and then along the road, the results don't seem to show up, you know, pulling together what we were talking about at the beginning about innovation with this governance structure and these paradigm shifts we're starting to see. Are are there innovative new ways that you're thinking about discussing among uh, among First Nations to, to secure these services without waiting on government or to be pushing the government to, to actually act and stop sort of talking in circles around uh, these issues? You know, where do we go next? I think uh, MKO has been very uh, assertive and actually uh, expecting change, if not demanding change, because we've been at the table. We've been saying the same thing over and over again without any change. But at the same time, we are now in a position where we're expecting those changes to happen because the lives of our people depend on it. And one of my goals is to make sure that we have the credibility and also to prove ourselves that we have the capacity to take on uh, to have the resources to be able to address our own issues. And uh, we have the people, we have the expertise. It's just a matter of giving us the resources to be able to look after our crisis or look our situations just like as we did in the pandemic. Just give us the resources, we'll do it because we know what to do. And that's probably one of the things that um, uh, the government has been very uh, reluctant to, is to hand over the resources so we can do what we want because we know how to do things in our First Nations. It's a matter of giving us the resources and that's where the problem is. And, uh, and we are not in a position anymore to be used as political pawns. And uh, just because there's an election coming up, uh, and all of a sudden there's all kinds of promises. Like, you know, we, we don't play that game anymore. We just, there's, we're dealing with life and death here, and uh, we don't have time for political games anymore. We want action, and we want change. We want reform, and we want things to happen on the ground. And we want, we want to be part of that, and we're being part of that as an organization. And I mean, isn't that the reason why, you know, creativity, innovation, uh, you know, we can do it ourselves. Um, Isn't that why it's so important to, you know, if people looked at you and went, why is this political leader holding a concert at Stony Mountain Institution? Like, like you might look at that or, you know, performing for communities at the Red River X in your band, or uh, there was an event, I think at the Red River X, I saw you at last time and there was a a run, a fun run for, for indigenous youth. I think that's what it was. Um, The, these events are crucial because they are what our communities have always done, which is to uh, incorporate um, laughter, uh, kindness, food, you know, and that these are the basic solutions that 
uh, I think are often forgotten by governments. They think, oh, well, this is this problem's too immense. This issue is too. But, you know, a, a pancake breakfast bringing fathers and daughters and children mm. together does as much work as any child welfare policy. In fact, probably more so. Absolutely. So what we do, like uh, for myself personally too, like I am aware of the people that I represent. I'm aware of where they live. And I'm even in that Stony Mountain, those are citizens of MKO and they do matter. And I wanted to show them that they're not forgotten about. And we do those things uh, uh, just to reach out and uh, maybe offer some hope. Like when we go into penitentiaries and I've been there three times, and uh, it's just to, to reach out and just hear them out and listen to their stories because there's hope for change for everybody. And that's why I do that, just because that the, there's hope for change. And if there's any time I can draw attention to a cause, like uh, we do this thing called the Santa Express, where we take Santa into our First Nations and we get all kinds of donations to make sure that the, the child receives a toy and some candy. Uh, if there's no other place where they can get it, we go in. And I've done that. Like, and it's a very rewarding experience to see the children and uh, and also to, to see the reaction of the children when Santa comes into their community. Uh, we've done it through, ch I've been on a chopper and landed in communities. I've been on a plane and landed at airports and the children come. So these things we do to raise awareness of uh, and getting some support. And, uh, and if I can use my talent to be able to do that, uh, I will do it. And it, it's not a self-centered approach to things like I do it because if I can help, I'll do it. You know, I'll make a fool out of myself if I have to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Grand Chief Siti, for uh, for coming in and for for speaking with us. I mean, this was a fantastic conversation, and uh, your insights and uh, you know, the ending on I think this little moment of of joy uh, is, is a really special thing. So, thank you so much for for joining us today. Oh, no, thank you uh, for having me. I do appreciate this conversation. Um, yeah, miigwech, Grand Chief Siti, and I can promise you that. Uh, I will definitely get breakfast next time we see each other. And uh, as thanks for being on the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. And and I think it is so valuable to end on hope because um, yeah. so much, you know, the thing I'm, I'm blown away by is uh, as every leader, every single leader of our First Nations, Métis, Inuit communities that I ever meet are always people that are embedded in hope. And I think mm -hmm. You wouldn't get into public service otherwise. I could say the same thing about almost every politician. But, but despite the challenges and the obstacles, there's a million reasons to not be hopeful and to still talk about hope after, you know, mm -hmm. a decade and a half, two decades in leadership is mm -hmm. so much. Uh, Big thanks uh, to everybody for joining us this week. Uh, we had a wonderful time. And I want to say a big miigwech to you, Julia Simone, my co-host, uh, for being uh, my partner here on the trail in the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute treat. Uh, it's lovely to hear from uh, so many different voices today and to to just chat with you about what's going on in the world. Uh, we're very excited and I hope that we have you back. However... I have to, uh, you know, they do that little segment 
on uh, fact checking and um, uh, in some TV shows where they come in at the end and they say, well, here's let's do some fact checking. Well, yep. we have just uncovered our crack research team here at the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast that Dan Lett actually worked for the Calgary Herald and he has covered the stampede. So what do you think about that? Oh, no. Uh, well, then I'm going to have to retract some of my earlier comments about being a better Lone Ranger than Dan. Uh, I, I still I, think you're right up there. I think you maybe just, surpassed him in a, many ways. <laughs> I think I just have the sort of Lone Ranger cowboy spirit about me. You know, it's hard to you can't replicate that with uh, with working at the Calgary Herald, unfortunately. So he loses all Calgary credibility because he cheers for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, that's oh all goodness, know. yeah, that I think that really explains it all. Like. I, there's no more comment necessary there. <laughs> we want to say a big much to our uh, our editor, uh, Paul Simin, who makes this podcast possible from the Winnipeg Free Press and all the great people. Uh, Wendy Sawatsky, who uploads this and uh, makes sure that we look shiny and new on all the platforms. Uh, we want to say a big miigwech and thanks to, uh, to Adam, uh, f- our producer from CJNU, who is just does exceptional work and makes us sound really great. And a huge thanks to our guests this week, Grand Chief Seti and uh, Ness, for uh, joining us as storyteller. Uh, I hope that, you know, you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please like, share it with your friends, subscribe. And uh, a big hope that you come back, Julia Simone. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you again for having me. Thank you to everybody who makes this possible. This is a wonderful project. And I hope to be back on the on the trail, as they say. Should we get one more <laughs> Calgary yeehaw? Or what was it? Oh, no, it's no yeehaw. It's a uh, <clears throat> yahoo. Perfect. <laughs> All right, see you next week. Bye.